This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's brilliant as always to be here with you. Um, I'm flying solo again this week due to Paul having some continuing heavy work commitments. Keep on working, Paul, and we do miss you and see you back soon. Um, This also happens to be the 50th episode of the show, but more on that after the interview. So let's get into it. Um, It's once again a pleasure to introduce a great guest to the show. Um, This episode, it's Toby Houncham. Now, Toby has had a burgeoning career over the past 20 years or so, playing with Britpop hitmakers Rialto, the legendary British rock band Mungo Jerry, and most recently as keys player for the inimitable and brilliant The Stranglers. Um, And he took on that role after the very untimely passing of the brilliant Dave Greenfield in 2020. As an obsessive Stranglers fan myself, it was an absolute thrill to catch up with Toby. But as you'll hear, there's a lot more to the story than that. Enjoy. Toby, can't thank you enough for doing this on a public holiday. That shows true dedication. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, look, it, it's great to have you on. And um, I, I thought we'd kick off like we usually do and just getting a little bit of an idea about you as a younger person. Not not that, you know, you're exactly 70 now, but um, younger person, what got Toby Houncham into um, music initially? Oh, crikey. Um, my dad was um, a really good, still is a very good um, piano player. And he played Boogie Woogie. He was really good at Boogie Woogie. And I remember he used to play, um, there's a couple of pieces, um, Swanee River Boogie, um, which is one of the, the sort of classic old boogie tunes. And that was, that's really how I started. I was probably, you know, 11, 12. Um, and yeah, I got into it. He taught me like the left hand and then we'd sort of jam. And um, and yeah, it was it was it was. It's quite addictive, boogie woogie. I don't know if it's a form of music you listen to much, but I've there aren't many people when you play it, um, and it is a passion of mine still to this day. That doesn't get the foot tapping, and it's very energising. So that that was my initial thing, um, and then I did grades at school. Um, I was pretty average at sport, and you know, academically, I was a kind of average student. But music seemed to be the one thing I was naturally reasonably good at. So, um, yeah, that was kind of it. And then I started playing in pubs from the age of 15, playing in jam sessions. And back in those days, you know, I'm going back to like the late eighties. There was still a quite a good live music pub scene in the UK. I mean, unfortunately now that 
landscapes changed considerably but there were there were you know in my area loads of good music pubs and, and loads of old pros and semi-pros and musicians who were really welcoming and so yeah that kind of got me into it so yeah and so my... and so the bo- the boogie woogie um and and very aware of it and we've actually even had the pleasure we had a, a lovely young woman uh veronica oh, i've forgotten her name veronica lewis uh who's a, a boogie woogie piano player from the u.s and it's obviously still a very strong uh, genre of music so I mean it, it just amazes me how you've gone from that to that broader period of music so did you have a aside from your dad a, a deeper introduction into that genre that really got you passionate about it? I did yeah there was a fantastic um, American boogie player called Big Joe Duskin who was one of the last sort of um, he's unfortunately he's passed now but um, he toured the UK I think it was 88 and he played a local art centre um, near me in a town called Aldershot. Um, and the West End Centre, a great little art centre. And he very kindly, um, afterwards, we met him, bought an album, um, and, and I had a little jam with him. And he ended up, he was staying in the UK, he actually ended up staying with my family at the family home for a few days and taught me um, a Pine Tops Boogie, which um, is another one of my favourites, um, and yeah, so that was unbelievably generous of the man. And because um, he was very passionate about keeping Boogie going. And so I got taught by, you know, a, a proper, a pucker American Boogie guy who, who actually met, um, he had lots of stories about meeting Albert Almonds and, um, you know, the big three, the big three, Mead Lux Lewis, Pete Johnson, you know. So that was, that was amazing. And so, yeah, that kind of got, got me more passionate um, and yeah, so, and to this day, I mean, I, I recorded an album last year in lockdown, um, which I called 12 of the Best, I think, <laughs> or Double Six, I can't remember, Double Six. Um, so yeah, if you search my name, my, my Christian name is actually Tobias, Tobias Houngem, so Toby Short for Tobias, so you can find that on Spotify or, you know, and, and that's my version of um, my favourite classic boogies, and then some of my own original um interpretations of the, of the genre so great yeah and um, we'll, we'll certainly link to that um in the show notes and so what what that introduction to that again that style of playing what how did that help you in coming years what what aspects of that approach to playing have really stood you in good stead in other areas of music Do you know what that's a really good question and it definitely helped me i think with improvising it certainly the thing i like about boogie and and the sort of blues 12 bar format is it's it's got an it's got a very certain structure so you know it's you go from e to a to e to b or whatever you know it's, it's quite rather than a lot of jazz modes or um you know it's 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 quite a certain it's quite a grounded structure and it gives me you know it gives you a lot of confidence um with to, to basically freeze up with the left hand doing the kind of you know whatever the, the, the there's quite a few different types of boogie and blues bass hands um and it freed me up so you learn loads of licks and chops and it's like lego you know and you get you get enough pieces and then you can start to sort of freely um mold them and piece them together so yeah i unfortunately i i'm not good enough to be a, an accomplished jazz player um I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit limited, um, but within the boogie and the blues structure, I'm quite confident and, and I've grown over the years to sort of 
develop my own style. Um, so I would say to answer your question, I'm not meandering away too far. Um, improvisation, um, rhythm, because the whole boogie of basically the or origins of boogie was um, it was like in, um, you know, in logging camps and, and poor sort of labor in the south of America. They didn't have um, they had very sort of improvised bars with like a couple of barrels of whiskey or whatever and a piano. So the, the pianist was the drummer, the bass player, everything. So that repetitive, fast left hand is effectively the drummer and the bass player. Um, and rumour has it that, you know, the piano player would always keep the left hand going and he'd you know, take a sip with his right hand or whatever um, of whiskey you get, you know. But um, so, yeah, rhythm. I mean, I, I, I think rhythm and improvisation are the two things and they would have stood you in good stead in those pubs pub rock scene in the in the uh, assuming the late 80s so what what sort of gigs were you playing then just cover band stuff like a lot of us did yeah yeah um to this day the, the same pub landlord is still there a guy called mark Ar Ar uh, sorry mike armitage and the pub's called the lion brewery in ash which is in surrey um so um, and it's still uniquely one of the last surviving of the breed because most pubs have been taken over by the chains you know and they're all just gastro pubs or they're all the same but it's unique and there used to be a jam session on a sunday afternoon and um through that most of the players in in the area on the scene the sort of semi-pro guys some really good guys i mean you know a couple of the guys had had some success i think one of the drummers had been in the wombles <laughs> he'd done the music for the Wombles or something. Okay, so for our US listeners, how do we explain the Wombles, Toby? I totally know the Wombles. How do we explain them? Well, the Wombles were actually ahead of their time because it was all about recycling and uh, being ecologically, um, you know, mindful. It was basically um, people dressed up as in furry suits, you know. Recycling things and Wimbledon Common. I, don't, I can't really remember it much more than that. But. Yeah, well, no, that's that that sums it up nicely. So, you so never you thought you'd get someone mentioning the Wombles. The Wombles, on no, that's yeah. gold. I love it. <laughs> um, as an Australian, I appreciate it. So, um, and so you, you're playing these pub gigs, and um, that's that's what what songs you remember? What what are some of the songs that still haunt yeah. you back from playing those days? <laughs> All right now. Oh yeah, free. Yeah. yeah. I love yep. the song, but you'd always get the bass players. It'd be the bass players' moment in that breakdown with the bass. So that 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 one um, was one that did the circuit. Um, I always remember um, what other ones? Crikey, honky tonk woman. You know, wonderful tonight. Eric Clapton. It's just all the middle of the road stuff. You know, coffee table music, really. Yeah, good. So, so you're not trying to do any of the new wave stuff. You're a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit too recent. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was of its time, and you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna um, be elitist about it at all. I think it was a very good grounding for me. You know, and the the older guys, the older sort of semi pro guys, and some of them had, had you know careers were really generous um and you know um i don't think there were too many keyboard players actually and i i had a little bit of a luxury that most people there, were, there weren't that many keyboard players on the circuit there was me and another guy who had been in gary newman's band he'd like been you know he was mike what was his name mike smith i think his name was he played with gary newman and um he he, he was like the name pro, pro on the circuit um so yeah 
And do you remember what you were playing back then? We, we'll talk about gear a bit later, but do you remember what you were playing back in those days? What, personally? What my yeah. listening to you mean? Um, no, you know, no, as far as um, keyboards. Oh, right. Oh, gear. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> my first keyboard was a Casio CT6500, which was basically, it was quite an interesting keyboard. It had a big lid, um, and it the Casio CZ synthesizers used something called phase distortion. It was like Casio's version of FM. And this keyboard was like a preset CZ keyboard. It was, you couldn't do a lot with it, but the sounds were okay. It wasn't touch sensitive. I had that. And my first synth I bought was a Yamaha DX11. Um, I remember buying that from Anderton's Music in, um, I think it was 88. Um, and I loved that little keyboard. It was great. Um, you know, I wanted, I couldn't afford a DX7 and it was a little four op, um, Eight, eight note polyphony uh, uh, FM synth and it was brilliant loved it I've, I actually bought one um, a couple of years back I, I bought one on eBay for nostalgia and, and I use it you know it's, um, it's it makes what that synth was famous for is it had a rat mount um, cousin called the TX81Z and it's essentially the same uh, architecture and lately bass was a bass sound that was used in like you know the early 90s um, dance and I, I managed to program that sound and it's so warm. FM was always considered a bit cold and digital compared to analog, but I've got some analog kit here and um, it's really impressive how how warm it sounds. And I never thought FM was supposed to be a warm sound. I don't know. But, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. big fan of that. Right. Well, my I was um, ironically, and this will go full circle when we talk about things you know, that have happened later in my career, my big influences outside of Blues and Boogie, I was a huge Stranglers fan. The Stranglers and the Doors were basically my two, my two, you know, bands that I was really pretty verging and obsessed with actually the Stranglers. And I went on an odyssey to try and have the same keyboards that Dave Greenfield from the Stranglers had. And you didn't have the internet back then. And the keyboard he used for that kind of electric piano, uh, No More Hero sound was called a Hona Sembelette which is kind of like a, a primitive version of a Wurlitzer. Um, it's a similar kind of, um, you know, it uses reeds um, rather than tines. And I saw in one of their videos, a video for a song called Sweden, a, he plays a keyboard and it was a clavinet D6. And I, I got one for a ridiculously cheap price, so like 100 quid, and it was mint. But of course, that wasn't the keyboard. That That's the Stevie Wonder superstitious, you know, sort of clav funky beautiful keyboard loved it to bits but wasn't what i was after and then i tried i got a hona pianet t um which which i had for a while um so yeah i was kind of guided by my obsession of trying to get the same sound as dave greenfield that's great um, and, and we're definitely going to talk about that and just just for interest so when you said you were obsessed about the stranglers from their very early stuff or were you were a bit of a, a latecomer like myself where sort of from oral sculpture onwards i was obsessed yeah, that's a good question. Both. I'd say both. Um, my first introduction was a, a mate at school um, had a Walkman and we were, we were doing a sponsored walk or something, and, you know, listening to music. And, he, and it was um, something better change. And um, I think my older brother had a copy of No More Heroes on vinyl. So my first introduction was the earliest stuff. But then that was, yeah, around 84. My first album I bought was The Collection, which I had on cassette. 
um, which was about 80, I think that came out 82. But I then got everything as it came out. So I, I, I think all sculpture I didn't, I was just after that, I think. But Dreamtime, I got, um, and all the live albums and compilations I, I would get, you know. And I've got a couple, I mean, I've got, even here, I've got, I don't know if you can see up on the wall. Yeah, I can. Got, Are they video discs? Yeah, well, they're picture discs. So that's JJ's Euroman Cometh solo album. That came, that was reissued as a picture disc, which was a thing, an 80s thing, um, you know, 12 inch remixes and picture discs. So yeah, I, um, unfortunately, I've lost most of my vinyl. Um, that's, there's a story in that. <laughs> but um, I used to have most of the Strangler singles. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of both. I mean, I, I was initially, you know, the classic sort of early albums really, really, you know, connected with me. Some of the, like the Raven and the Men in Black took me a while to really process them because they were so out there. Um, but I've often found music that takes a while to process and, and, and assimilate in your mind. You end up, that's some of the stuff you end up loving the most, which is an interesting thing. Um, so yeah, it was both. I mean, I, I really liked um, All Sculpture. I thought that was a great album. And Dreamtime, um, you know, that's yeah, often, no. not, that's often forgotten, but always the sun's st still played a lot on the radio. Oh, yes. Anthem, yeah. yeah, it certainly is. And so now we'll definitely get on, on to that as well. So how did we get the bridge from playing sort of <laughs> pub rock to, and I, uh, let's talk a bit about Rialto, but I assume there still has to be some bridge. You went from playing in cover bands yeah. in pubs to actually making a bit of a career out of this. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how things happen. Um, so progressing on from that, um, those early pub gigs, I, I went, I got, you know, I went to a version of high school here, which we call sit form college. I hated it. I just wanted, to, I knew I wanted to play band. I think I lasted a month or two. Um, and I, I then joined a band that played all the British bases in Germany and Europe and um, the army bases. That, that used to be quite a good living back then. Um, so I did that. I then a couple of years later worked in some local music shops and um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm meandering a little bit here. But anyway, the crossover for, with Rialto was it was 1996. A drummer mate of mine who I played in bands with saw an advert in the Melody Maker which was a music, you know, famous music paper here. And that used to be how a lot of people got gigs. Um, people would advertise drummer wanted, stuff like that. Again, way before the internet. Um, and they wanted a drummer and a keyboard player. Um, and it just said, band, you know, for signed band or something. So we, my mate and I, uh, my mate Russ and I went up to Camden, I think it was, um, and did an audition. I got called back and he didn't, <laughs> so <laughs> which is a shame for him. Um, and I never officially got it. I just kept getting called back, and I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually it was it was apparent that I was in the band, but um, I never officially got. Yeah, Toby, you've got the gig. I just they just carried on using me and calling me. So it was by chance. Yeah, I just by chance uh, melody maker ad that my mate had seen, and I I went up with him. And yeah, seemed to make a bit of an impression. And so. I was going to say, and I mean, Rialto had quite a, a degree of success to a large extent, didn't they? It did. Yeah, they um, they came from 
there was a band called Kinky Machine that Louis Elliott, who basically Rialto were primarily Louis and Johnny, Johnny Bull, the guitarist. They were the nucleus of a band called Kinky Machine who had had a bit of success and they retained a record deal with East West Records, who were part of Warner's big label, you know, major. And um, so let me just turn my fan off. because It's getting a bit cold in here now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so they they had the new, they had the idea for um, they wanted to basically create a new band and um, they wanted something more cinematic. You know, they, the influences were very much like John Barry, um, Ennio Morricone. So they wanted a very sort of cinematic, sort of romantic sound meets, you know, it, Kinky Machine was quite a sort of indie hard edge sort of guitar band, really. So hence the need for a keyboard player. Um, so we were, you know, the arrangements use of strings. Uh, on the first album, we hired a harpsichord for one of the songs of Quarantine, Hammond organ, um, dulcimer, you know, it's quite, um, quite an eclectic um, soundscape, but it was very cinematic and, and you know, it's a, I'm proud, you know, I'm proud of being part of that. I, you know, I can't take any credit for the songs. It was Louis wrote the songs. Johnny pretty much produced it. I had a little bit of input in some of the keyboard lines I did. And, you know, but yeah, it was very much a learning curve because these guys have been in the industry a while. And I, I was the youngest in the band um, by quite a few years. So it was just wow. <laughs> and yeah, we kind of, um, you know, whilst we were with East West, there was quite a lot of money thrown at it um so we got uh you know we grew quite quickly got radio airplay um on radio one which was the big station at the time still is i suppose but um got loads of tv um got three top 40 singles and a top 20 album one song got to top untouchable got to number 20 which so i got on top of the pops which was always a lifetime uh, ambition for anyone who doesn't know, Top of the Pops is like, it was the legendary music show of its time. Um, we were doing really well. You know, our star was rising, um, played Glastonbury, loads of festivals. Um, and for some bizarre reason, we our biggest market was actually South Korea. I don't know how that happened, but we were massive in South Korea and we went over there for a tour. And that was the only time I really experienced what's, what it must be like to be, you know, like, you know, mega band like Coldplay or Oasis or something. Because we we arrived, there was a press conference with national TV and we had like microphone with our names and yeah, it was mad. So, um, yeah, it was, um, Rialto was quite an interesting journey. I mean, it lasted about three, I think we were, we were going for a couple of years and then we got dropped by East West. Um, I think I can talk about this, actually. There was a gagging order um, okay. on this, but I think it's out there now. But um, there was some record company politics. A guy, um, the MD of East West, Max Hole, went off to Universal and they got this guy in from Rob Dickens, I think his name was, from Warner's Europe, who promptly just dropped us, dropped all of the access. So, yeah, I don't think it was... I think we were just in the crossfire of some politics or something but whatever the reason you know we we were fatally wounded by that because we found home in a in a indie label who had more cheaper um i can't even remember the name of the label it was definitely dwindling um you know you're very vulnerable as a new band you know whilst you've got the wind in your sails and you've got momentum you grow if if you're not 
robust enough or at a high enough level to weather something like what happened to us, which we weren't. Um, we didn't really recapture it. So um, yeah, they, and I, you know, I kind of drifted out with them on the second album. They were going in more of an electronic Depeche Mode um, direction. And I, you know, I, I, I think I went up to the studio like two times or something. So I, we basically, you know, just grew apart and then they, they reverted to the, you know, they didn't really need me to be honest. It was all on sequences. And so they reverted to a four piece um, or three piece, no three, four piece. And then it died out, which is a shame because I think Louis, Louis is a really, really good songwriter. Um, and some of, you know, some of that material, I occasionally hear a song or it comes up and, you know, I'm proud to have, been part of that and it was one hell of a ride whilst it lasted it was an amazing experience and so what what happened for you after that then toby because obviously there's a big stretch of time there between that and and what you're currently doing what what happened for yeah. you? i'll tell you what happened um i started playing with mungo jerry <laughs> ray dorset aka mungo jerry um it's 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 really bizarre how things happen um you know there's an element of there's an element of luck, timing. I mean, you've obviously got to have the goods, but there are plenty of good musicians out there who never get known. But so there is an element of luck and timing, pardon me. So basically what happened was there was a band that we had toured with um, through Rialto. I'd made some, some connections and there was a drummer in a band called Bennett, who were another like termed Britpop band, um, as we all are now. And he was involved with Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. She was doing a solo album. They needed a keyboard player. So I, I, I was involved with that project and we did some gigs. And, and through that, we were on the same bill as Mungo Jerry in some festival in, I don't know, it was Rotterdam or something, one of these massive arenas where they have all the old acts. I think it was called Prehistoric or something, which is quite, a, quite an amusing name. Um, and after that, there was an after show and I got drunk drinking with the, um, the Mungo boys, um, the drummer and, um, the, and the bass player. Um, so, we, you know, we kind of kept in contact. And shortly after that, I got a phone call saying, you know, Ray's looking for a keyboard player. And, um, and I still play to him, with him to this day. <laughs> wow, so he's <laughs> still going got, strong. Yeah. yeah. I played with Ray. That was about 19, uh, no, about the millennium i think that was about 2000 that happened and yeah we're still i mean i'm still in contact with him we we've done we did we've done a couple of albums in lockdown remotely from all our respective studios i'm actually in my studio which is effectively a garden shed with a lot of gear in it <laughs> but um yeah we i just get sent the sent the um, mixes and i send in my keyboard stem so yeah, so I, that's how I got into Mungo Jerry via Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. Um, that that was good for a while. I mean, we were doing lots of gigging back then. Uh, we did a quite long tours, uh, Sweden, Europe. A lot of his markets, Europe, um, like Germany, Austria, Austria, Sw Switzerland. And he's at heart, he's a blues guy and he loves the doors. So we hit it off. I mean, you know, I kind of, I play very much, he gives me very much, he's always given me free reign to express myself. I mean, obviously you've got the hits in the summertime, you've got to play those riffs, but there's a lot of um, license to improvise and explore. And, and he, he's amazing life, Whether whatever you think of the, the records, and I happen to think he's brilliant, but live, he's 
a real blues guy, you know, and he's quite, I think he could be appreciated more as quite a credible British blues artist with a lot of the stuff he's done. So that's kind of how we've endured because, yeah, I mean, that's two of my favourite things, blues, Ray Manzarek style kind of doors keyboard playing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. And that's... And so, I mean, and, and agree with you totally, Mungo, Jerry. I mean, Ray's a, an absolute legend and, and, and does cop an unfair what would you call it stereotype for his biggest hit or um and and so on so but based on that false stereotype and your work with Rialto and 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 the the boogie woogie background how the hell did the stranglers approach you it's mad um i'm trying to think that's what okay yeah the Rialto was the initial connection um jj had um a girlfriend i think at the time or someone he a friend of his who worked for our label. Um, she worked for East West Records. And, you know, she knew I was a massive Stranglers fan. So we were doing a TV show. It was um, TFI Friday, which is Chris Evans. It was a big show in the, in the 90s. And JJ came down um, to studio and we went for a pint afterwards. And, and it was amazing because it wasn't like me as some sort of, you know, fan. It was like me as the keyboard player of Rialto. And... And I had a few pints with JJ and he was brilliant. He was just, a, he's such a great guy. And then a while later, um, Hannah is this, this um, his girlfriend or friend at the time, phoned me up. And I remember she said, she said to me, she said, you're not driving, are you? And I went, no. She said, oh, good. Because um, JJ wants you to record some demos with him. And I went, yeah. So um, I went to a studio in North London and um Again, this is around, oh, I'm still in Rialto, so this must have been 98, 99, something like that. And we recorded some demos, and he was he was lovely. Uh, I remember he used to do, like, some karate moves when he was happy with something that I'd, play, <laughs> I'd played, you know, quite excitedly near me, my, near my face or something. I was thinking, okay, I am hope, hope that's because he likes it. <laughs> um, and a lot of that material, I think, ended up on some consequent um, um, Strangers albums, like Norfolk Coast. I think there's some genesis of some ideas there. And we, I have talked to JJ about it since, actually. And, yeah, so, ironically, I he wanted to try a slightly different keyboard player than Dave Greenfield. But, ironically, I think he felt I sounded too much like Dave. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I think it was it was a nice, it was a nice experience. So that was my initial connection with the Stranglers. Through, um, yeah, so, the, so there was a relationship there. And then obviously, um, extremely sadly, when, when Dave passed away um, early, I'm losing track of time now, was it, it was like the year before last. Yeah, it was March two years ago. So literally yeah. just over two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm guessing, um, Toby, that it didn't even occur to you then that there may be a potential um, opening there. It was just, I mean, I know Stranglers fans and the band themselves were pretty devastated by that. Yeah. No, it was it was horrible. I mean, um, I was I was very upset when I heard the news because he he and him and you know like I said him and um, Ray Manzarek are my two single biggest influences, and, and he's big been a big part of my life, you know, uh, the Stranglers. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I there were some other connections. I mean, the Stranglers management represented a band I was in called Saturday Morning Pictures, which was around two thousand and four, I think. And they did joke at the time that if any if Dave ever got injured, I'd be the guy they'd call up. And unfortunately, 
you know, he, he passed. So, it, you know, clearly I was, I was extremely flattered to get the call. Um, and and it, it was, you know, very humbling that I was actually headhunted for it because I, I'd imagine that, and I'm aware of, I think there were a few keyboard players who, who would have been quite keen to get that gig. Uh, I'm not going to mention names, but I am aware of a couple of reasonably high-profile guys as well. Um, I can, yeah, who, I can imagine who yeah. were sniffing around. Yeah, so I I am hugely um, you know humbled and grateful. Um, I got the call from Louis, who's there. He's often known as the Fifth Strangler because he's been their longtime producer. He's the front of house engineer. He's a brilliant guy, and um, you know he. He's very much part of the machinery of the whole organisation. So, yeah, he's a good, he's a mate of mine actually. So, um, I've known him over the years. So, yeah, I got the call, and it was weird because nothing happened because of COVID. You know, but the initial um, plan was we would maybe get together, and you know, I'm, I'm sure the guys would have wanted to hear me play. Um, it was one thing being recommended, but. If you don't get on, if the chemistry is not there, you know, it's it's um, you know, there's a lot of factors, as you know, um, when you play with, with people. So it was really over a year later that I initially got to play with Baz and Jim because JJ was stuck in France with COVID, with um, you know, the lockdown. So we um, it was me, Baz and Jim. Um, Baz, the singer, Jim, the drummer. Spent a, a couple of days up at, um, at Jim's place and we just hit it off. It was amazing. Um, actually, Baz was quite emotional. Where the first song, I think the first song we did was "Hanging Around," um, and he, he actually had to stop because it was still obviously very raw. Because uh, he'd been he's in, been in the band twenty years, you know. I mean, he knew Dave very well. Jim's been in the band ten years. It's mad. Um, so yeah, he got quite. They got quite emotional actually because um, it, it felt like you know Dave was still in the room in some way with. The, the parts um and um that was yeah that was a year after pretty much i got the phone call so it was very strange sitting on that knowledge that potentially i was going to be in you know one of the best band more well, from my point of view it's best band in the game um so it was a bit push and pull you know there, were, there was a lot of kind of is this really going to happen um but then very quickly it did. I mean, uh, we, we did a tour of France uh, late last year, which went brilliantly. And we've just done a big um, UK tour, um, which is probably, I think it's termed as the last big tour. And it was like, you know, good five, six weeks on the road. And I don't think we're going to do tours of that size. Um, no, but I, and I was going to ask you about that, Toby, because what came across to me, and, and particularly that gig you've recorded in France, uh, what was it called? The Arts? Anyway, the yeah, one that's A-R-T-E. on you. Yeah, yeah A-R-T-E. Was, um, yeah. What, what stood out really, really strongly, and for those of our watchers and listeners that don't know the Stranglers um, that intimately, this is a band that's been around since 1974, and I think it's fair to argue, Toby, not once has it ever rested on its laurels as a band that's got a good back catalogue of hits. They've always wrote new stuff, released new albums. Yes, they've gone through different personnel, and JJ's the only original member, but what I saw in that France gig is a band that is still absolutely on top of its game. Thank you. So I've got to say, I'm, um, I've been very 
okay, I'm using the word humbled. I know that's obviously that's often used as overused that word, but um, the fans have been fantastic. I think because of the circumstances of losing Dave, I think, and COVID and everyone's, you know, our lives have been, you know, turned upside down. And I think ha having the music carry on, um, the, the vast majority of the fans I've come in contact with have just been so supportive and, and, and that's made, made, I mean, I jokingly, when I first joined, I did sort of say in my contract that I wanted a bulletproof perspex screen in front of the keyboard, so, just in case some disgruntled fan took a pop at me, but couldn't have been further from the truth. The fans have been brilliant and, and the band as well. I mean, Baz, JJ, one thing I've, I've learned with the Stranglers is it's no accident. They're as good as they are. They, they rehearse, they work. I mean, we did a lot of rehearsing, which I'm grateful for because it's a challenging gig, for, particularly for a keyboard player. And yeah, I mean, the first, I remember the first day JJ came over from France and we were in rehearsals and um, they were very kind. They said, look, Toby, you tell us which songs you want to do first. They wanted to just bed me in. And we did No More Heroes. And JJ started that bit, and oh my god, that was just like hairs on the back of your neck moment. And it was evident that JJ's, I mean, JJ's, you know, he's what he turned 70 earlier this year, but you'd look at him and think he was 20, 20 years, 25 years younger. He's, you know, he's into his karate, he's a and he's still got the hunger and he still enjoys it. Baz is brilliant. I think Baz um has a real energy. Um, and Jim is just an animal on the drums. You watch him smash the hell out of the kit. You know? So it's hard not to kind of get um, caught up in that. Um, and so it does feel like there's a new energy there. And obviously, I know you can't speak on behalf of this, Toby, but it seems to me that even though there may not be those big six-week tours, it feels to me like there's a lot of life in the beast yet. I, I mean... I would say yes. I mean, I don't think we'll ever do a really big done no. tour so, you know it wasn't a gimmick it was the last big tour that's for sure but we've got um festivals we've got stuff coming out over the summer we've still got some european dates that have been rescheduled because of covid um in the autumn and i'm aware of chat but it's, it's ultimately it's down to you know jj um baz you know they're still processing the loss of dave really so you know, it's great. We've got these tours out. We've got the tour out of the way. We've got a few, you know, the, the remaining European and a few sort of festivals over the summer, including Le Mans, which I'm looking forward to because I'm a big petrol head as well as um, music. Um, so, yeah, um, I personally would love for that to be the case, that it continues as long as there's an appetite for it within the band and I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and, um, and given the amount of songs you've learned, you just mentioned it is, I mean, there's so much to learn. So tell us a little bit about the experience of getting your head around those songs. What what did you have to, what new challenges did it put to you based on your previous work in music? And, and you know, what did you have to adjust and, and learn with? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I have, I have played, I mean, I, ha, I didn't, I wouldn't say I was in a Stranglers tribute band, but a couple of mates and me are Stranglers fans. And we had this band called the Men in Black. I think we did about four gigs five gigs over the years and um even at my wedding we we reformed and did um did a few songs so i knew a few of the songs so you know they're no more heroes golden brown strange little girl all those kind of greatest hits ones i pretty much knew to a point 
there's knowing them to a point and then really drilling down and getting it right. And I, I'm very passionate that my approach has been to, to um, recreate Dave's parts as accurately to the records as I can. I mean, inevitably, my own style is going to creep in. And I've noticed, you know, the fans have commented on a few things I do slightly differently. But ultimately, you know, JJ referred to it as they're almost like pieces of classical music in their sense. And I agree with him. You know, you listen to the solo in um, No More Heroes. That is the fans know every note. They'll sing along the notes as you're singing, the so as you're playing the solo. So, you know, you've got to drill that down and, and and I knew it to a point but never like really as close as I could get it so there was a lot of work there um and but I found as after a while I started to notice Dave's style a bit more um he had a slightly unorthodox style with his fingering um I mean he used to you know very much sort of first three fingers I think um would be the bulk of uh what he would use on the motifs and but you learn his motifs and his trills and you start to, the more you do it, the easier it gets. The hardest one was walk on by the solo in that. I mean, that is, that's really hard <laughs> and it's hard to decipher it in the mix um, on some of the earlier records. I mean, I've live, he never played it exactly the same way. Um, so going back to the records, you know, I'd try and process out the keys and separate them out as much as I could, isolate them. Um, and, and you did have to learn it from mixes because, I mean, like, and I know uh, a lot of keyboard players, people don't tend to leave behind records. It's not as if there was some magic leather-bound tome of here's all the Stranglers back catalogue for yeah. keyboards. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing Louis, Louis did for me, um, he gave me a copy of a gig, uh, one of their later gigs, and I had a stem with the band, and then a stem with Dave's keys. So I, for the songs that were on that gig, it was really useful. Um, but again, you know, Dave over the years never quite plays a lot of the parts in the solos the same um, on certain songs. So yeah, I mean, that helped, but yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot of work. Um, some songs I already knew and I could play like Golden Brown, I, I can play, I can play that. Um, Strange Your Girl, I knew those, but there, there were plenty. And, the, and some of the newer material I wasn't familiar with from the Baz era onwards, you know, um, they, they took a little bit of working out. So, and, and did you have to do sort of a, uh, some sound design and resampling as well as far, as far as I'm assuming some of those iconic sounds across some of the big hits? Did you have to redevelop those or was there stuff you were able to take? from Dave's um, gear on. what we what we decided to do um and again louis is basically the you know he's the the technical um manager of the band so we decided we had chats about it i mean I, there was the option for me to you know come in afresh with some new sounds but we felt it was best to use what dave was using um because the band were used to the sounds, you know, the, the in-ear monitor, we, you know, go through quite a lot of rehearsing with monitor engineers and you're used to a certain sound, but we did tweak them. Um, Louis, Louis has done a lot of work over the years. He sampled a Sembalette, Hona Sembalette to get that No More Heroes sort of lead sound. And, and they did a really good job with that. Um, and yeah, so he, to his credit, a lot of the sounds were, were in the ballpark, but some I wasn't happy with. Um, so we did, yeah. Louis and I spent a bit of time, um, and Louis's brilliant at sound design and stuff. So we improved 
a few of the sounds. So it, it's what Dave was using, but just dusted off a little bit and and and, and updated. But I am investigating um, some some other options at the moment. But ultimately, you know, there is a case of if it ain't broke, you know, you don't need to fix it. So well, that's probably a good segue, Toby, to talk about your rig. So what on this tour that you've well, I know the tour's not finished that you're going back out in June, but what, what is your rig for the for this current period? Right. Well, it's basically um, two Phantom XRs. It's basically a rack. And then we've got the keys you see on stage are just, uh, they're just mother keyboards. So um, we've got two, ev two of everything for redundancy. So ev everything it has two of, no matter what. So the, even the mother keyboards, we've got two of them. So if one goes down, we've still got something. Which is, you know, I mean, that's what a lot bigger pro bands um, generally do that sort of thing. So it's a Phantom XR, um, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically, like, you know, that Roland sample library kind of stuff, uh, you know, XB 5080 uh, sort of era sounds, but it's got sampler built in. Um, but the problem with those is the parts are getting very obsolete. The screens tend to go on them and they're not very easy to fix. Um, and I think spare screens are, are kind of, you know, hard to come by now so that's the reason why i would approach changing it more than anything else is just um you know the future proofing aspect but that you know that's a reasonably it's a good bread and butter piece of kit um and we also have novation a station which is effectively the analog moog kind of sound because uh, dave it's probably helpful to point out what dave used to so, so what we're trying to recreate he in the, early, in the first few albums, he had a Hammond. Um, I think it was an L100 or something like that. It was basically a tone wheel Hammond. The Hone Assemblet, which is a very basic early, um, you know, electric piano. And he had a Mini Moog. And that was that was his rig for Rattus, No More Heroes, um, Black and White, the first three albums. Then he started getting into, though he was quite pioneering with synth, so... Raven onwards, he got into Oberheim's. So, you know, these are the sort of, there's quite a wide spectrum of sounds we're emulating. So we're trying to emulate the Hammond, the Sembler, the Moog. The A station does a decent job, actually, because it's three oscillators. And Louis, again, programmed it brilliantly before my time. I didn't, you know, it's already there. And it sounds fat. It sounds decent. Yeah, there's better stuff out there, you know, especially now with the re-emergence of analog gear, there's 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 stuff. I mean, I actually, I don't know if you can see, I bought the um, the, Nova, uh, the Behringer Model D, which oh, is yep. basically their, their rip-off of the Moog. It's pretty close. You, you know, there's a lot of AB videos on YouTube where people compare real Moogs to, mini Moog to the Moog, and I know it's it's a controversial piece of kit and I don't know how the hell Behringer have done it, how they've cloned the circuitry and the components without, you know, getting sued by Moo. but they, it's, it's great. So I've, um, yeah, I've been sampling that um, with a view to maybe introducing that into the rig. Um, so yeah, so the, it's the Phantom um, and an Innovation A station. Um, and then the mother keyboards, I've got three, in front of me and one to the right which is generally the mini moog emulation um because dave generally one of the things i learned when i learned that dave's parts is how much he comps with his left hand 
I didn't notice, and it's not obvious in the mixes, but he does pads out the sound, you know, like Hammond or, you know, um, you know pad or, but he was very rhythmical and, and so if only, if only you'd been a boogie woogie artist or something, Toby, that would have helped you. <laughs> again, it's funny how things work out, isn't it? And again, you know, going back to one of your earlier questions about how boogie woogies helped me. Um, yeah, it's given me, you know, a decent left hand and um, which has helped definitely with the Stranglers. But yeah, I mean, even being a big fan who knew a lot of the stuff, it was a big, lot of work to... Um, to, to, to undertake it but you know I'm, like I said I'm looking at some options um, we're talking with a couple of manufacturers who are interested in maybe doing something with us one a couple of the biggies um, right um, I can't really say anything no about that's it. okay so, yeah yeah and because um, I as you know my next step is I've tried to get the parts as close to you know playing wise but I, there's always room for improvement with the sounds particularly as we're using, you know, 20-year-old gear um, and, you know, there's a lot of new stuff. I would dearly love to get, um, you know, something recreating the Oberheim a lot closer. Uh, and I um, assume you saw the news um, this week, Toby, that Oberheim are back? Yeah, that's fantastic. Because I I remember back in the 80s, I, I had a, a friend of the family's, was a, he was a, a BBC engineer, did a lot of the sessions at Maida Vale. Um, so I got, I got to see Erasure, you know, it was amazing. And back then, analog was, you know, still a bit big. And um, you had the Japanese synths or the American synths. And the, the American synths were always considered warmer. And the, I remember I almost bought an OB-8 because um, back then they were affordable. Now it's stupid money. And, yeah, I always loved Oberheims. The sound of the filters, just I, I've loved them. And the American synths I've always had an affinity for. Although I'm not dissing the Japanese stuff. I used to have a Jupiter 8. It's my biggest regret letting that thing go because, um, you know, I look on eBay what they go for now. I mean, it's insane. So I've long since missed the boat to get a, <laughs> to get one of those. So um, uh, great stuff. So, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, on top of that, Toby, you know, you've got a bit of a busy gig at the moment, but a, a couple of years back, you managed to get yourself qualified in music therapy. So you've, you've got to, you know, I assume you just get bored after hours <laughs> <laughs> or during the day well, in your case. Um, basically around sort of the mid to late 20, you know, noughties, whatever we call them now, it was, things were quiet, you know, Mungo was getting quiet and I was thinking, Christ, you know, I'm getting to an age now. I need to think about my career. I need a backup plan. I, I never do things conventionally. You know, most sensible people would have done the degree, had the backup plan first, but I just, I'm quite impulsive, <laughs> but I, yeah, I did, um, I did think about it and, uh, and I've always, you know, I've always been interested in music therapy. Um, I didn't think they'd take me because gen most music therapists have come from a classical background. But again, ironically, improvisation, clinical improvisation is one of the most important, is probably the most important tool in the toolbox of how we, um, I, just to explain music therapy. It's basically yeah, I was about to say that'd be great. Please, yeah. if you could, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a psychological therapy. Um, it's part of the group of the arts therapy. So you've got art therapy, music therapy, uh, drama therapy and it's basically using a creative medium like music as a way of connecting communicating so it's very often used with people who are non-verbal might have learning disabilities dementia it's a lot of work um you know and, and I, I have worked 
in some care homes with dementia, older adults with dementia. Um, I currently work in a school um, with children with autism and some children with learning disabilities and, and some, you know, it, it, and it is um, for people who aren't able to articulate themselves verbally, like if you or I would go and see the shrink, be on the couch, talk about things. It's, very, it's a useful way. And, you know, music therapists uh, in the UK are quite stringently trained. You have to do a, um, a vocational MA, so you have to do a master's degree. So I took two years out as a student and, and um, having gone from not even doing A-levels, high school, whatever you'd call it, I jumped to a master's degree, which is, you know, was quite a challenge. Um, and um, yeah, it's one, one of the best things I've ever done. I find it so rewarding. And, and coming back off tour with the Stranglers, um, the school I work at, I had to quite carefully manage the break because when you're working with autistic kids, any change is it's a big deal. So, you know, um, we, we had to carefully think about that. But, and, and I've reduced my work. I just do a couple of days. But literally the week after the tour, I was back at school and, and, and uh, it was wonderful. It was just I'm so lucky to to do the gigging, which I love and the work that I love. You know, it's um, I, for anyone who's thinking about music therapy, check it out. It's um, it's a brilliant thing. Um, and, you know, for musicians, it, it, it you know, it, it can be it can be a really good career option. Um, I think and it's I, quite a good thing in Australia as well, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is absolutely something down here, and I, I believe in the US as well. So, I yeah. mean, I understand you won't be able to go into details about specific individuals, but has it been a really rewarding outcome you've achieved as a music therapist that really stands out for you? I said, again, understanding, you you know, confidentiality and everything. Yeah, um, there have been a couple of moments. Um, I mean, um, yeah, um, I don't think what I can say. I had um I remember getting a letter. There was a place I used to work at with old, there were sort of older adults with um, learning disabilities, and there was one person I was seeing who who was having some behavioural issues because didn't know how to express themselves, and um, so they were quite challenging. And I had a letter from the family just saying um, after I'd left this post, and it got it got sent on to me just basically saying thank you so much for the work you did. Um, we were able to have our first Christmas together as a family. Um, and it was just a really special time. And, and, you know, it was, it was lovely just to, just to get some kind of validation that in some way I'd helped this person to maybe process their feelings in a, in a slightly um, healthier way that enabled them to be in a room with other people for, you know, in an easier way for a while. So, yeah, there, there are things, and and um, I, it's inspiring. I mean, I work with young um, adults and children who have just the most challenging things to deal with in life. You know, just to just to be in the world. To, you know, imagine what it's like to not articulate how you feel to someone and to be stuck. You know, so to have moments where you are able to support someone with expressing a feeling or um, you know, dealing with the anger of their disability, or it can be so many different things. Um, it's, it's just inspiring. And just the effort and the energy that, um, you know, we all get a bit caught up in our own, the minutiae of our lives, and we can get the silly little things can become, um, you know, um, overwhelming for us sometimes. So it's, it's good for me, actually, just to be reminded and just to, you know, 
have a bit of perspective. Yeah, um, certainly. Well, I, love, I love the work. And I, so if anyone's interested, I mean, um, in the UK, we've got an organisation called BAM, it's the British Association of Music Therapy. Um, and yeah, there's some good information on their website about music therapy. It goes okay, great. We're, and we'll definitely link to that as well. Um, and I mean, it sounds like in that role, Toby, you are passing on, you know, your knowledge and expertise in music and music therapy to other people. But um, we're, we're going to ask you for something slightly easier, and that's to pass on your your experience to other keyboard players. What are some lessons, you know, if you had your life to do over again, you wish you'd known back when you'd started out? I'd have been a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, I do. I'm actually a bit of a frustrated drummer. I, I, I do love drumming, um, but uh, no. Aside from that, as a keyboard player, um, I think the ability to improvise um, can really give you, because there's a lot of good players out there, and there's a lot of guys who are able to decipher, and you know, um, you know, there's a lot of music schools that weren't around. Um, like you can do a degree in music technology and things. Back in my day, you know, it was generally more of a classical route. So there's a lot, there's a lot of competition. I don't think there's ever been so much available, but clearly it's harder to 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 make a mark um, with with the competition. So I think improvisation is something I strongly um, recommend. And I think the blues and boogie woogie is 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 a user friendly way of getting into that. Jazz can be you got to know your theory. Um, and I, even though I did my grades, I play entirely by ear now. Um, I, I'm rubbish at sight reading. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way because um, I've, you know, for the kind of music I do, that's, that's, um, that works for me. So, yeah, I think learn some boogie, learn some boogie, uh, learn some blues because it, you know, boogie was the precursor to jazz. It was a very early um, form of music around, you know, the turn of the 20th century. Um, so it's a good framework and it's quite user friendly. Um, it's a difficult question because, like I said, well, I think learn to boogie is a great lesson for any player. But, but the, you know, there is a lot of luck, no matter how good you are. There's a lot of luck. I think believe in yourself. You know, it's easy to have your self-confidence not if people, you know, have, don't get your music or whatever. Or, um, obviously, I think as a basic standard, you've got to know your stuff. You, you've got to do classical grades are a good way to get a good grounding because you, you do your scales, you learn music theory, structure. But if you can't, you know, if, you, if that's not a route that interests people, then even just getting a scale book, forget le learning classical music just learning fingering how you, you know you the mechanics of how the keyboard is laid out and how you can navigate that i'd say yeah get a scale book do your scales um yeah and just don't be you as a person i think this is important so don't be afraid to let your individuality come out don't be a clone um, he says, who's trying to clone another keyboard player as closely as possible with Dave Greenfield, but with my other music and, uh, and stuff, yeah, I'm, a lot of people have described my music as a bit wacky, a bit out there, a bit different, and I love that. You know, I like stuff like Frank Zappa, and I don't like conform, conforming. You know, I like individuality and originality. So no, I don't great. Know there, but... no, no, I think there is. There's lots useful there. And um, I mean, 
when all that good information doesn't help is when you have a, a train wreck on stage. So I can't imagine, Toby, whether it's Strangles, Stranglers, Rialto or, or elsewhere, that you haven't had something go disastrously wrong. Oh, my awesome. God. Yeah, I've, I've had a few things. Um, oh, just one other bit of advice for yeah. this. I remember the manager of Rialto said to me, be humble. Mm. And, and I always remember that. And that stayed with me. That's probably the best single bit of advice. Never let any, you know, I mean, I've never been, you know, in a mega, mega big band like, um, but, you know, in the Stranglers, there's fans who might hang around after sound check and, you know, it's a big deal. They've spent a lot of time and effort and always be humble. Um, I think that's probably the best bit of advice. Going, yeah, going to train wreck. Um, I remember we were doing V98 with Rialto and we used um, an Akai S3 of 3200 XL sampler, which had zip drive, um, which were god awful things. Oh my god, it was scuzzy. They were basically like um, 100 meg drives, but they were so unreliable. And I mean, we had all our sounds on this thing, um, and it wouldn't load. And we were due to go on the stage, and and I think I was getting a massage because we were on the main stage, and and the artist facilities were really good there. And I was getting a massage. And the tour manager came running. He said, Toby, keep my keyboard tech, you know, fortunate to have a keyboard tech, wasn't able to load it. So we had a bit of a fraught five, 10 minutes trying all the backup discs that we had. And mercifully, but this was just before I was due on stage. Yeah, that, that was pretty horrendous. I've had a piano stool collapse. So I've fallen flat on my ass um, in a Mungo gig. That was that was funny. I heard a ripple of laughter. <laughs> I thought, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I got canned off stage um, when I was when I was in that covers band doing the British basses. I remember we played a gig for the Irish Fusiliers and they didn't have draft lager. It was all cans. And by the time we came on, there were mountains of empty cans. And they thought it'd be, they obviously didn't like us and they thought it'd be funny to can us off stage. So that's the only time I've, it's like a Blues Brothers moment, you know, Bob's Country Bunker with the chicken wire. At least the cans weren't full, Toby. That's when you know they really hated. Yeah, yeah. I'm grateful for that, yeah. (laughs) No, nice. No, they're three great examples. Um, And and another common question we asked, Toby, is to, to tag a keyboard player, someone that you've admired over the years that you'd love to see interviewed, whether it's on this show or elsewhere, just to find out more about their career? Wow. I mean, most of the guys I like are dead, unfortunately. Well, you're allowed to, you're allowed to pick dead people? Well, I'll tell you, a, a pianist who I, I is a massive, um, another influence of mine is Vince Garaldi. I don't know if you can see here, I've got... Um, I've got some, I've got Charlie Brown, oh, yeah. um, Peanuts and Snoopy here. Vince Garaldi did the music for the Charlie Brown um, stuff in the 60s. And um, he his style, it, it actually, when I was training um, with a music therapist, one of the music therapists, uh, an American lady called Deeper, told me, you sound like Vince Garaldi. Um, and so I started, I revisited it. I knew I would always like the music. And since that, I've been massively into him again. And uh, I just loved his style because he was, he kind of flirted with boogie and jazz and he had quite an interesting style. He was, he wasn't the flashiest, you know, he wasn't up there with like Oscar Peterson or, you know, technically um, 
great bit. He was rhythmically really good. And I, I often regard myself as quite a rhythmical player. It's not just about how fast you can do a motif or, you know, except, you know, the, those sort of mechanics. It's also rhythm. Rhythm is, is really intrinsic. So, yeah, I would say him. But out of people currently, um, Ben Folds. I'm a big fan of Ben Folds. Um, right, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just that whole that whole guitars against the law sort of the guitar guitars are against the law sort of mantra of their, uh, the Ben Folds five sort of albums. What an amazing songwriter. What a fantastic player. Yeah. I mean, he, and he's a great guy, you know, whenever I've heard him interviewed, he's quite, he's quite a character. So yeah. Great picks, Geraldi and Folds. I'll see what yeah. I can do. Yeah. Love one, it. one you'd probably need to do it via a seance or something. Yes. And, um, and the other ones. Yeah. I mean, He's obviously quite a big artist, but um, he, he seems quite yeah, amenable. Yeah, I no, love it. Thank you. Uh, and then the dreaded Desert Island Discs question, Toby, five albums, if you had to pick your top five. Yeah, crikey. Do you know what? You did mention this at the start of the interview, that you'd sent me an email with <laughs> asking the questions to give me some notice. And I didn't see that because it ended up in my junk folder, as we, as we established. But... There'd have to be a Stranglers album there. Um, I would say The Raven, because that, that his, I mean, for me personally, as my journey of listening to music, that, that was um, a really important album to me. And I think it marked The Stranglers as well, turning from that sort of, they never really were a punk band. They were just, a, they merged in the punk, um, you know, time. Uh, so there was that kind of hard edge to their music because they were just battling the establishment. But the Raven marks, you know, some of the songs on their Duchess, um, Nuclear Device, you know, it, it, the use of synthesizers. I just think that's a really amazing album. So I, I would put that in there. I would have to have a Doors album. Um, it changes, but at this moment in time, uh, LA Woman. I loved LA Woman because they kind of went back to their blues roots. Because ultimately they were a blues band, you know, they all considered themselves a blues band and they went back to their roots. What a fantastic album, Riders on the Storm, you know, brilliant stuff. So that would be two. Um, I would have, I'll probably have a Vince Garaldi, you know, one of the holiday specials, um, Charlie Brown holiday special kind of um, soundtracks. I'll probably have to have some some sort of blues or boogie um i mean my dad was a massive muddy waters fan so there's a lot of the muddy waters stuff mm. but maybe one of you know a boogie woogie okay it's probably sacrosanct to have a compilation album you know? oh you're allowed but, to that's maybe, right boogie woogie compilation maybe, maybe something because uh, with the big three mead lux lewis pete johnson there's quite a lot of archive you know um albums so something with 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 those guys in any form would be on there um i've got such an eclectic taste in music i mean i right, so you've got one left yeah any anyone <laughs> that you've you've been on stage with supported they've supported you someone that stood out for you that's a really good question the, um, the most common one toby is um the beatles box set <laughs> that's the most common answer yeah the best of the beatles yeah, yeah. so <laughs> Um, so I'm a bit of an Alan Partridge fan. There's a, um, there's a, oh, yeah. 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 So what's your favorite album? It'd have to be the best of the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'm gonna have. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm aware that my mind's not. You know. Well, I think we just give no. you a pass, and it's your top four. You. That's fine. Yeah. Thank you. No problems. Um, and then our last question is what we call the quick fire ten. So I'm going to fire ten keyboard related questions at you, and just a short, the, as simple an answer as you can manage, and they're, they're all fairly straightforward. Okay. So um, okay. He, here we go. Stereo or mono? Mono. Wow. Okay, cool. Sitting or standing? Historically sitting, but I've discovered standing. Um, uh, yeah, I'll go standing now. Yeah. yeah, imagine if you sat at a Stranglers gig. Then you'd have cans thrown at you. Um, yeah. yeah, standing. Let's go standing. Keytars, sexy or an abomination? Abomination. Awful. Agreed. Tra transpose button or adjust on the fly? Um, I've got to be honest here. I, because I, yeah, I'm a little limited in some in some keys. So like F sharp minor. If if it's one too many black keys, I'll reach for the transpose button. So yeah, yeah, transpose. <laughs> Excellent. Um, extend or anything else? Do you know what I've? I'm on a mission to find stand that works for me. Yeah, I, I should ask you about. Look, let's take a segue into that. What, what, yeah. what's your challenges been? Because it is a challenge for a lot a, of players. I spent a fortune. I mean, X stands. Yeah, you know that's generally been the thing. We've in the Stranglers we use an A stand, but I hate them because they take so much. You know, fortunately, I don't have to set them up. Um, I, I've, I'm interested in those uh, column stands, but then I don't know if I'd like get in the way with my feet. I think they, the right stand is yet to be invented. I think there's a market opportunity because they're all flawed. There's not one stand that um, really does it. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Well, I've got a combination of X stands. In my studio, I've got an X stand. I've got a Z stand for my, you know, um, weighted keyboard here. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, not, I've yet to find anything. No, but I, no. I suppose X, I'd go X. Yeah. X, yep, no worries. Last gig you attended as an audience member? I'm going to have to pass on that. Sorry. I That's can't all right. Think. No problems. No, you're not. It might lying. be a local band or something. It's probably something local. Nothing uh, big, big wise. Um, we're supposed to have seen Queen. My, my wife's a massive okay. Queen fan. So we were supposed to have seen Queen with Adam, Adam Lambert. Uh, that doesn't count because it didn't happen. But. Um, yeah, I, I just have to say. No, you, you're not alone. You're not the first person to say they can't remember. Um, I can't think back more than two years. That that's is, right. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Um, best, best thing about live gigs? Energy and connection. Oh, does it have to be one thing? No. One thing? I'd, connection. Connection. I think I'd, I'll go connection because it's a shared connection because generally people if it's an artist uh, that everyone's paid money to go and see, you have a shared uh, interest in that music and, and that connection with the, the these four blokes or five or whatever on stage who are making this stuff out of nothing into the ether that we are all connected with. Yeah. Connection. Excellent. And the worst thing about live gigs. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of, um, things being too loud i'm quite paranoid about um tinnitus i've got a little bit from historic exposure but it's not got any worse because i always use earplugs so yeah i don't 
the worst thing would be going to a loud gig and having forgotten my earplugs. Um, I, I would, yeah, I would not relax. And I think you may have already identified this, but one thing you'd like to see invented that would make your life uh, as a keyboard player easier. Keyboard stand. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, we've been left, uh, you know, we've been, we've not been serviced well over the years. I think somewhat there is an opportunity for someone to invent something that's robust, that's flexible, um, that's, you know, lightweight. It's quite, you know, not, not a hard remit here. Uh, and that gives you, you know, enough room to sort of move your legs or whatever, <laughs> have your pedals. Yeah, I think the ultimate keyboard stand has yet to have been invented. So, Agreed. And then the last Somewhat one, cool. Toby, red, red keyboards, yes or no? Can you see? Oh, I can see a red one. You've got two red ones there. There you go. I've got two red. I mean, I, I don't like conforming, but I have to say I bought this, the, the Nord Electro. And I've got the A1 because I'm quite lazy at programming. And the A1 is, even though it's, um, you know, it's modelled, uh, it's really, really easy to come up with sounds. I'm not the best engineer at, you know, stuff, uh, programming sounds. And, yeah, the, um, oh, it's got a noise. The Electro is, is great. So, yeah, I'm afraid yeah. there is red in my... Um... That's okay. There's no right or wrong answer. Nothing wrong with the Nord Electro. Yeah. Um, no, Toby, can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's been absolutely brilliant. And um, as I said, from the just from this most recent tour, just seeing what you and the band have delivered is nothing short of incredible. And I know I'm not alone in wishing that this goes on a, a long, long time more, um, you. both your career and, and the, the, the work with The Stranglers. So, yeah, can't thank you enough. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, um, you know, and, yeah, it's been really, really interesting. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Toby and I hope I didn't appear too much the fanboy. Um, I just find that amazing that you've got a guy that's, you know, learned boogie-woogie piano to playing in one of the most renowned punk rock bands in music history. Um, yeah, just, just love that from end to end. Um, so just before we go, a couple of things, a quick shout out to our gold and silver supporters. So the Core Chrome Music Group on Facebook and also uh, our recent guest, um, Brother Paul Brown from the Waterboys is now an official supporter of the podcast. Huge thanks to Brother Paul. Uh, and if you had the pleasure of listening to that interview, you'll understand he's a guy that gives and gives and we really appreciate his support. Um, the links to each of the websites for our supporters are in our show notes. Thank you for, for your support. Now, I did mention um, briefly in the introduction, this is actually our 50th show. So um, it's probably not an achievement that means a lot to anyone but those behind the show, which is obviously myself and the brilliant Paul Bindig. So I want to do a special um, shout out to Paul. Paul is one of the most modest people you'll get um, find, but he's also one of the most brilliant presenters, questioners, co-hosts you could ever hope to have. Paul, can't thank you enough for everything you've done. You've been here for a very large majority of those 50 shows, and I hope you're here for pretty much all of the next 50 and, and beyond. So huge thank you to Paul. And then most importantly, a big thank you to our listeners. We have grown, gone from strength to strength. Initially, when we started, we had, you know, some dedicated couple of dozen people. We can now number in the thousands, our listeners, and we hugely appreciate the time you take to either listen or watch. And I also want to reinforce our commitment. We are not going anywhere with the audio podcast. Yes, we do do a video version, um, but the audio is 
just as an important part of what we do because we appreciate for a lot of you it's about listening in the car or exercising or whatever it is you're doing at the time and we're going to continue to cater that believe me so all that aside we'll be back in a fortnight or so but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means um, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com facebook is facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard CHR1, number one. If you like good old-fashioned email, we do love hearing from you um, at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Uh, and finally, we do um, have a Patreon account if you'd like to become an official supporter, where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And that's at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. So again, thank you for listening. Here's to the next 50, and we'll see you back here next episode. Yeah.